So we're continuing in John chapter 7, and you may remember that early in John chapter 7, Jesus went up to Jerusalem to the um, Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot in the Hebrew. And so how that would happen is it was an eight-day feast. And on the very first day of the feast, there would be a procession from the temple down to the Pool of Siloam. And the priests would go down to the Pool of Siloam, and they had this golden pitcher. And they would scoop up a big pitcher full of water. And then they would walk it back to the temple. And then that day and the following seven days, they would use that water in a special ceremony. And so what would happen is they would take the water and they would pour, they had two silver bowls. And one was already had some water in it and the other one had wine in it. And they'd take this water out of the pitcher and they would pour a little bit into each of the bowls that day. One was an act of prayer and the other was a sign of dependence on the Lord. And as they would do that, they would blow the shofar. The shofar was this musical instrument, this horn that was made out of a ram's horn. And then on the last day of the feast, on the eighth day, the priest would walk around the altar seven times. And after they did that, they would have what they called the Hoshana, the Hoshana Rabbah, which is the great Hosanna. And Hosanna, you know, means save now. And so this was sort of the, it was sort of the grand finale this last day. You know, on the 4th of July, you know, we have a barbecue some lady fingers, some sparklers, right? You have the fireworks show. And at the very end, right, there's the grand finale. And, and that's sort of what, what this was. On this eighth day, this, this thing that they did, it was, it was the, the kind of the culmination of the, <coughs> of the whole event. And there was a sense of expectation and a sense of excitement in the air, a sense of celebration. And that's where we pick up in verse 37. <clears throat> and I want to note before we get to verse 37, as I said, this was the last day of the feast. But this was also the last feast that Jesus would attend before his crucifixion. So this is the last day of the last feast. And, and I imagine that there was probably a sense of urgency on the part of Jesus. I think there was maybe even almost a sense of, of desperation, how desperately he wanted to communicate the gospel message to the, people, to the people that he had come to save. And so it says in verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. And I think most of us have heard these verses before, but a lot of times we don't get the cultural context of what was going on there. And so we lose a lot of the weight of what Jesus was saying. Right? It was on the last day of the feast. It was that great day. It was as the priests were walking around that altar seven times. It was as that water was being poured out that Jesus makes this proclamation. And we have to remember that this event wasn't taking place in the Pacific Northwest, right? 
where we get rain all the time, where water's not a big deal, where it's more of a burden than it is anything else. I woke up this morning, and dang, it's going to rain again. You know, yesterday I wanted to work in the yard, and it was raining all day, and I was cursing the clouds. Right? It wasn't that way in Israel. It's not that way in, in the desert. In the desert, water is a big deal, isn't it? Right? In the desert, water is life. Water is the difference between life and death. Have you ever been to a real desert? Not just like eastern Washington-ish where it's kind of dry. Like a real desert. A few years ago, Denise and I were in Peru. I got to teach at the Bible college back there. And then um, afterwards, we, we took a week and kind of toured around southern Peru a little bit. And, and that's a desert there. Peru is one of the driest places on earth. One of the regions that we were in, it hadn't rained in 30 years. That, that's a desert, friends. And so we went to this place called Huacachina. And, and to get to Huacachina, you had to drive we were on this tour bus, and you had to drive a couple hours through the desert, and all it was was just mile after mile after mile of, of nothing but sand dunes. There were no shrubs. There wasn't anything there. And, and we get to this place called Huacachina, and it's a little oasis in the desert, at this lake in the middle of the desert. And by lake, I mean a pond about two or three times the size of this sanctuary. They called it a lake. And it's just right there in the middle of the desert with nothing around it that's alive for miles and miles. But there by this little pond by the water, there's palm trees. And there's grass and there's flowers and, and there was life. And that life was there because there was water. And, and that's the setting here in Israel. Water is life. No water means death, right? There was, if you ran out of water, there's no... Um, there's no Culligan man that you get to call, right? You don't, get to, you don't get to run out to Costco and buy a couple cases of water there. You're, you're in a desperate situation if you run out of water. And so that's sort of the situation here that we're looking at. My iPad just did something really weird. Hold on. <laughs> So they're in this dry desert environment, and Jesus makes this statement. If anyone thirsts, have you ever been really thirsty? Like parched, like desperate for water? I remember once I had to cut weight. We had this, this event coming up, and um, my weight that I was supposed to compete at was 185. And a month out, I was 217. So that's a, that's a lot of weight to cut in one month. And... Um, so I ran, you know, I had garbage bags on, I'm out there running and do, doing the whole thing that anybody who ever does combat sports has to do. And so I was close, the last, like the, the day of weigh-ins, the day before the fight, I was still like three or four pounds over and everybody on my team who was competing was the same. We're all, so we all find ourselves sitting in the sauna at this gym and it's cranked up like 107 and we're all mad, we're angry and thirsty sitting in this thing and finally the time comes for weigh-in and after you make weight, and all you want to do is just drink and drink and drink. And, and, and that's, that's what, what Jesus is talking about here, that, that desperation for water. He's talking about that, that spiritual desperation. 
And Jesus says, come to me and drink, and I will satisfy you. He says, come to me and I will quench that thirst. And that really was a shockingly audacious statement that Jesus makes. And then he says, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers. Some of your translations say torrents of living water. Jesus says, look, if you believe in me, you will have rivers of living water flowing out of you. So look at the heart of what Jesus is telling the people here. He says, come to me, believe in me, and I will fulfill your deepest needs. Come to me and I will meet your deepest needs. I will satisfy you in a way that nothing else can. And Jesus understood that men have more than just physical needs. He understood that each one of us has spiritual needs as well. Each one of us has a deep spiritual need that only he can fill. Remember he says in Luke chapter 4 verse 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Again there he's saying, look, there's, there, there's physical needs and there's physical satisfaction, but there's also spiritual needs. And those can only be met by the Lord. And he's highlighting that same idea here. He says we have physical needs and we have spiritual needs. And those spiritual needs can never be met with physical things. Let me say that again. Those spiritual needs can never be met with physical things. But a lot of people have tried and still try, don't they? I think Solomon is a great example of that. And that's basically what the whole book of Ecclesiastes is about, isn't it? Look what he says in verse 1. Chapter 1, sorry, chapter 1, verse 16 of Ecclesiastes. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over me, all who are over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So he's tried that. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Behold, this also was vanity. Then verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7, he says, I bought male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So he says, look, I tried pleasure. I tried possessions. That didn't work. In chapter 3, verse 9, he says, what gain has the worker from his toil. He says careers and, and striving, that doesn't fulfill a man either. What Solomon says is, look, I've tried everything. I've tried wisdom, I've tried education, I've tried hard work, I've tried pleasure, I've tried everything the world has to offer. And nothing, he says, satisfies this, this longing that I have. Remember, he says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Everything I'm trying, it's, it's meaningless. But then he says in chapter 3, verse 11, that God has put eternity into man's heart. Another translation says that God has planted eternity in the human heart. 
And what he's saying is, is that God has created us with this natural longing for eternity, this natural longing for, for spiritual things. And we, and we try to fill that longing with all kinds of other stuff, and it doesn't work. Relationships won't fill that void. Wealth, power won't fill that void. Nothing, stuff doesn't fill it. Experiences, pleasure, those things don't fill that. And we look around, we live in this area with, with all this, this homelessness. Some of you guys watched that special that came out last month? And just talking about the overwhelming majority of the people who were involved in that, it was due to drug addiction. It was due to, due to, to the opiate crisis that we have going on. And why are people doing that? Why are people taking so many drugs? Why are people doing all these things? I think it's because they have this, this feeling of, of emptiness and hopelessness and desperation. And they're, and they're longing for something more. And they're just searching for anything that will fill that void. That's why so many people drink and, and smoke themselves into oblivion. Because they're experiencing this, this hole in their spirits. And they don't know how to fill it. Solomon says that God has placed eternity in man's heart. And we look around throughout our planet, throughout history. Right? If you do a brief study of anthropology, and ladies, I don't mean the store. Um, Right? Look, every society, nearly every single society, from as far back as we can go till now, all over the world, they all have some kind of a faith system, some kind of a belief in God or gods or, 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 or some kind of a deity. And I think that that's one of the greatest evidences that there is a God. And they might be worshiping the wrong God, they might not be worshiping correctly, but but seems like everybody just knows innately that there is a God, that there's something bigger than us and greater than us and something that we're supposed to be worshiping. We have this void that only Jesus can fill. But we keep trying to fill it with other things. And as many of you guys have experienced, as many of us have experienced, it never works, does it? Trying to fill that void with all the other things of the world, it doesn't work. And Jesus here is saying, look, I can do it. I can fill that need. I can complete you. I can, I can fill that space. That I, can, I, I can fulfill that thing that you're longing for. Come to me, he says, and believe and be satisfied. And he says, not only will I fulfill you, but I'll give you an abundance of what you need. So much so that you're going to have rivers of it flowing out of your life. I will overflow you, he says. Now this he said, verse 39, about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Holy Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When Jesus is talking about these rivers of living water, he's talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And when we come to Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living God, he comes inside of us. He takes up residence in our spirit. And I think that this is one of those things 
for those of us that have been believers for a long time, we sort of start to take that for granted, don't we? Do you realize how amazing that is? That God, that, that the creator of everything, that the one who, who spoke creation into existence, that he takes up residence in you and in me? That his spirit comes in and dwells within us? Do you realize just how amazing that is? How wonderful that is? That's crazy. It should blow our minds. And if it doesn't, something's wrong. He goes on to verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So when Jesus said this, when Jesus made this proclamation, there were a few different reactions. Some of the people said, wow, this is a prophet. Or, or some of them said, some translations say this is the prophet, sort of a reference to Moses. And so they got it that there was something different, that there was something special about Jesus. But they didn't get it all the way. And we see that all the time, don't we? People believe in Jesus, sort of. Right? They believe that he was a prophet. <clears throat> they believe that he was special. They believe that he was enlightened. Maybe they even believe that he was sent from God, but they stop there. Paul David Hewson said this. Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of the other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow that. He doesn't let you off the hook. You know who that is? Paul David Hewson, by the way. Anybody? It's Bono from U2 said that. Very profound quote. You guys, the only guys who knew it there, man. I'm, I'm proud of you guys. I'm glad you were here. Hey, otherwise, he did. Otherwise, I would have felt real silly. Thank you. So some of them sort of believed. Others that said believed. They said, this is the Christ. This is the Mashiach. This is the anointed one. This is the one that we've been waiting for for, for all these centuries. Still, others said, how can this be the Christ? He's a Galilean. The Messiah is going to be from Bethlehem. He will be a descendant of King David. And see, they didn't have the full picture here because we know <coughs> that Jesus was indeed born in Bethlehem. He was indeed a, a descendant of King David, as the scripture attests. But maybe that wasn't even the issue because I found that there are some people that will always have a reason not to believe. There are some people who always have an excuse not to believe. They have some objection, and you answer that. They have another objection, and you answer that. Then you address this and that. And, and some people, they, just, they don't want to believe. And so they'll always find an excuse. Some people, they don't 
reject Jesus on, on, on rational grounds. They reject Jesus because they don't want to believe. And it's as simple as that. All the other stuff is just an excuse. Right? You can have great apologetics. You can have the answers to all their questions. You can reason and argue. But you can't reason and argue people into believing. It has to be a decision and a choice that they make. It has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. Either they're eventually going to come to a place where they believe in faith, or they reject. So in verse 43 it says, there was a division among the people over him. Understand that. Jesus divides. And I know a lot of you have already experienced that in your life. As you become a Christian and you walk with him, for no rational reason, a lot of people, a lot of your friends and families and coworkers will begin to turn against you. And it's not because of you, it's because they're opposed to Christ who dwells within you. Luke chapter 12, verse 51, Jesus says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. And it's not that Jesus is, is purposefully trying to divide people. It's not that Jesus came to, to wreck families. He's saying that's the natural result of believing in him. Some will choose to believe and receive, and others will reject Jesus and the people that follow after him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officer answered, No one ever spoke like this man. You remember back in verse 32, the Pharisees had sent the temple police, the temple guards out to arrest Jesus and to bring him in. They wanted to interrogate him. They wanted to question him. And remember, we learned earlier that they were looking for a reason to put Jesus to death. So the officers go out, they're looking for Jesus, they're going to arrest them, and they get there, and Jesus is speaking, and the crowds are listening. And I don't know exactly how it went down, but I imagine it was something like this. Oh, there he is, let's arrest him. And then the partner says, oh, hold on a second, he's not going anywhere, let's, let's hear what the man has to say. Let's gather some evidence. And as they're listening, as they hear the words of Jesus, they realize that something is different about this guy. They realize that there's, that there's power in what he's saying. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, says, When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority not as their scribes. And I think that this is exactly what the temple guard is realizing here. That, that Jesus wasn't just up there parroting what he'd heard from some other rabbi who learned that from some other rabbi who learned that from some other rabbi. Jesus was directly proclaiming the word of God because anything that he said was the word of God because he was God. And they realized that. He said, wow, this guy's not like any of our teachers. And so they go back to report in to the, the high priest and to the Pharisees. 
And the Pharisee says, well, where's Jesus at? He said, well, the thing is, he said, no one ever spoke like this man. There's something about him. There's something about his words. There, there's something about the things that he was saying. You guys need to listen to him. You guys need to check out his podcast or something. Some of you guys think, well, listen, Pastor, podcast didn't actually come out until 2004. I know, I was making a point. But they recognize that Jesus was different. And so they said that. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? They say, what? Did you, guys, did you guys get sucked in too? Did you guys get bamboozled? Did you guys, did you guys get suckered? Did Jesus pull the wool over your guys' eyes as well? They say, look at us. Have any of us believed in him? You see a little bit of arrogance there, don't you? If we don't believe him, how can what he says be true? That's what they're saying. We set the standard for orthodoxy. We set the standard for good theology. Just follow our example. We're the keepers of truth is what they're saying. But this crowd, verse 49, this crowd does not know the law, and they are accursed. They say, look, some of these common folk might be following Jesus, but they don't know the Bible. They're, they're accursed. They're all going to hell anyway. Is what he's saying, right? They're going to hell. What are you listening to them for? And again, we see that attitude of the religious elite here, this pridefulness, this, this looking down on the normal people. They're saying, look, we are the elite. We are the educated. We're the ones that you need to follow. And I feel like we see so much of that today, particularly coming out from like the Hollywood elite. A lot of times there's this attitude of, if you don't believe what we believe, then you're backwards, and you're out of date, and, and you're not really thinking right. And that kind of elitism, that kind of prideful thinking, has no place in the church, and no place in the kingdom of God. Right? That kind of prideful elitism is the exact opposite. It's the antithesis of what we, of what we see in the life of Jesus. Jesus, he could have come like that, but he didn't. He came as a humble servant. He came as one who was washing the feet of others. Nicodemus, who had gone before him and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? You remember back in John chapter 3. Jesus and, and Nicodemus had this, had this e meeting one evening. And they're kind of discussing the things of God. And, and Jesus is talking about the necessity of being born again. And it was out of that conversation that, that John 3.16 was born. And we don't know for sure if, if Nicodemus was a believer yet. But the Lord is definitely moving in his life. And Nicodemus speaks up and he says, Can, can we condemn Jesus? Doesn't the law say that, that we have to try him before we sentence him? Shouldn't we at least interview him and examine his life and his works before we, before we cast judgment? And they replied, verse 52, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. 
Now, there's a lot of irony in this verse. First of all, there were prophets from Galilee. We know for sure that Jonah was from Galilee. There's evidence that Nahum was from Galilee. And there's evidence that Elijah may have been from Galilee. And these would have been common facts that these guys would have known. These learned men, these elite thinkers, they were either ignorant of some very basic information or they were willfully ignoring facts that didn't fit into their narrative. Can you imagine that? And second, they were wrong about Jesus' origins as well, weren't they? Right? If they would have been intellectually honest and looked into the situation, they would have seen that, that although Jesus had a Galilean accent and he may have grown up there, he was born in Bethlehem, exactly where the prophecies said he would be born. He was indeed a descendant of King David on his maternal side and on his paternal, well, paternal, but I'm Step paternal, I'm not sure how you'd phrase that. Right? On, on his stepdad's side, we'll say. But they didn't care. They weren't interested in the truth. They wanted to suppress the truth if it didn't fit into the narrative that they wanted to put forth. And they said to the guards, you're deceived. To the people, you're accursed. To Nicodemus, you're biased. And ironically, the Pharisees were accusing the other people of being those things, and they were all three of them, weren't they? The Pharisees were deceived. The Pharisees held biases and prejudices, and they were the ones who were accursed due to their unbelief. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 34. Jesus at this point, he's a newborn. And his mom, Mary, she brings him into the temple to be presented to the Lord. She brings Jesus in for a, for a christening, for a baby dedication. In verse 34, it says, Simon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So Simon says this prophetically. He says, people are going to rise and fall depending on what they believe concerning Jesus Christ and who he is. What people believe about Jesus it's going to reveal their hearts, and it's going to reveal their thoughts. And we see this exact thing here happening, don't we? What the religious leaders thought about Jesus revealed a lot about themselves and their own hearts, didn't it? It reminded of what Paul told the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. For we, he's speaking of the church, for we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. 
and to the other a fragrance from life to life. And that's what we see happening here. The people, the guards, the leaders, they all saw the same thing, didn't they? They all had the same opportunity to believe. Some saw Jesus and saw life. To others, Jesus was the fragrance of death. Jesus is divisive. The words of Jesus split humanity into two camps. He creates believers and unbelievers. Verse 53 strikes me a little funny. It says, they went each to his own house. Things didn't go like they wanted, so they went home. It's pretty much what happened. Like spoiled, petulant little kids, they got upset, and they took their ball and went home. I'm not going to play with you anymore. As we close, I want to circle back around a little bit and look at those opening verses. Are you thirsty? And of course, I'm not asking if you want some coffee after service. Do you have a deep spiritual thirst? Are you craving something more in life? Do you have a sense in your life that something is missing? Do you have a sense that, that you are made for more than this existence that you're living? God has planted eternity in your heart. He has created within you a need for Him, a desire for Him that only He can fill. And maybe you've been trying to fill it with all the world has to offer to no avail. Jesus is asking, do you want to try something different? Do you want an abundant life? Do you want a life that overflows? Jesus says, believe in me then. Follow me. Seek me, he says. And you have rivers, torrents of living water coming out of your life. And I love what Jesus is saying there. He says, look, I'm not just going to meet your needs. I'm going to give you so much. I'm going to bless you so well that it's going to affect everyone around you. It's going to touch everything that you touch. That's cool. Listen. If Jesus' words ring true with your spirit this morning and you find yourself spiritually thirsty, spiritually dry, I would invite you to drink from the well, to let Jesus fill you. Let the Holy Spirit overflow you with living water. And if you find yourself here this morning and you've never been born again, Jesus would say, repent. Turn from your sins. Friends, call on the name of Jesus and be saved. Stop wavering. Stop doubting, Jesus says, and simply believe in him. Be forgiven and be filled with the Holy Spirit of the living God. Heavenly Father, we love you, Lord. 
And we're so grateful that you sent your son to die on our behalf, Lord. And not only to forgive us of our sins, but we're so grateful that you sent him just to bless us so abundantly. You show us so much grace and mercy and loving kindness. You give us this abundant life, Lord. We pray that you would help us to walk in that and to experience all that you have for us, Jesus. We ask that in your name.